0: Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time.
1: Welcome to episode 52 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the poet, educator, and scholar, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander, president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Previously, she worked at the Ford Foundation and was also a professor for 15 years at Yale University, where she taught poetry and chaired the African American Studies Department. In 2009, you may remember, she was the inaugural poet at the presidential inauguration of Barack Obama.
0: What'd you guys talk about? So... As a scholar, a poet, an artist, she's someone I've long read and admired. She's able to really look at the human experience and particularly the black experience in such a potent, powerful way across time. Very nuanced as well. Yes. So we were able to talk about everything from Medgar Evers to Emmett Till to Rodney King to George Floyd and not just talk about those instances, but talk about how they were mediated, talk about how they're understood now, talk about them in the context of her own parents' lives, for example, both of whom are now in their 80s. We were able to also talk about it as a nation's story, a nation's history, basically how the personal and the collective meet. And we also talked about it in the context of a project she's working on now at the Mellon Foundation, this $250 million monuments project, which is geared toward transforming the nation's commemorative landscape. It's a subject, obviously, I am fascinated with and have long been interested in. We also unpack her personal experiences of growing up in Washington, D.C. Her, her father was a civil rights leader, worked for Lyndon B. Johnson and for the Carter administration, and was just very paramount in her own learnings of leadership. We go all the way to her work as a poet and essayist, a professor, and now as a philanthropic foundation leader.
1: Sounds amazing. I'm
0: very much looking forward to this. This is Spencer
1: and Elizabeth.
0: Joining me today in the studio is poet, educator, memoirist, scholar, and cultural advocate, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander. She is currently the president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder in arts and culture and humanities in higher education. Welcome, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I wanted to start on a very um, intense subject and I would like to frame it as the subject of 80 years, Mm. particularly the past 80 years, that specific period of time, and what it means when considering the fact that Emmett Till would have been 80 years old this Mm -hmm. year. How should we consider this period of history and the chasm left by Till's murder?
3: Mm.
2: Well, that's a great question that makes me immediately think of the era of my parents who are 83 and 88. So we're sort of talking about their lifetime. And in the case of my specific parents and the people who raised me and so many of the people who I have admired and looked up to, those people worked and believed that in fits and starts, they were moving our country forward. Away from racial hatred, away from pervasive racial discrimination, away from, you know, a caste system that has defined this country from its inception. And I think also into the light of historical embrace, Mm. you know, that is to say, we are who we have been at many different points in time. We can't sanitize it or change it looking back at it. We have to know more as we look back to understand all the simultaneous strands of stories that bring us to this moment in time. And I think that this era has been very, very hard for those truly noble people because what they've seen is that what felt like the progress that they contributed to, especially uh, when you think about the momentum of the 1960s and the 1970s, um, when you think about all of the social movements, when you think about all of the good changes in government, Mm. in the case of um, my father in particular, working as a special advisor with President Johnson in the White House on the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and all of the great society, you know, heading the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That was kind of the job he had in my most formative years. And so to think, Every day, my dad is going to work for this concept, equal opportunity, employment. We all have to go to work. We all have jobs. Mm. What does it mean to work together? And by the way, with a very, very interracial team in that belief, in that hope and towards that light. So, you know, given that uh, we are still rife with violence, discrimination, given that the last for five years in particular, have unleashed a, not just a a, a rhetoric of violence, but also a a violent language that's leapt out of the box. That means that people are treating each other with increasingly unchecked incivility, because we saw that from the top for so long. Mm. It authorized so very, very much. Those people shouldn't find themselves in this time when they've worked so hard and now should be enjoying a bit of the fruit of their, of their labor and sacrifice. Mm. That doesn't mean that I think that we haven't made any progress at all. Um, And I think that certainly the memorialization of, and, you know, telling the histories of Emmett Till and the Emmett Tills and the conversations that talk about the Emmett Till's, in the context of the present moment, that is more of a mainstream conversation than it was, which I, I think coming from my perspective, I think that's one of the, the amazing contributions of, of Black studies mm-hmm. um, and of all of the hyphenated studies that also emerged from the late 1960s in universities and colleges. But what do we have to learn right now Perhaps that progress is very, very fragile. Can it be undone in a lifetime? I I think obsessively about succession. I think obsessively about generations. I think obsessively about what does it mean to build strong, knowing that whatever it is we're moving forward, we're not going to be around forever to do it. And we need to have troops of people doing Mm. it. So that's kind of a, you know, a meditation on on right now. I mean, to Emmett Till himself, which, as you know, is something I've written and thought a whole lot about, an incredibly important story to us. Uh, I think it's movement forward that there is a memorial to Emmett Till and to that story. I think it's movement forward, even though it's um, a disgraceful truth to take in that we now know that Carolyn Bryant lied. From her mouth. You know, we we knew that before. I felt that we understood that before. But now Mm. she's told us that that's the truth. So, I mean, yeah, we have the truth. You know, a child is dead. But I think what it's important to say, even as we are telling the story better and more widely, and I think that perhaps the way that his casket is displayed at the National Museum of African American History and Culture is the most enduring legacy mm-hmm. um, because, you know, Smithsonian's last as long as anything does in this country, right? And um, Telling our stories and that it is so sanctified when you go to visit it, you know, that you cannot photograph it because it's sanctified. It's a pilgrimage. But I can't help but mention that, you know, the, the sign of Emmett Till's memorial is often riddled with bullets. So... I think that's that's where we are in uh, a space that calls upon us to just keep on keeping on, right? Mm.
0: And as you've written about and noted, the Till story wouldn't be the Till story without this Jet Magazine photograph mm-hmm. that became iconic in its own way and was so viscerally... I mean, it moved a generation. Mm -hmm. It, it in many ways, helped push forward the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of speak about that picture in the context of this sweeping 80-year history and also within the context of another figure who's part of what you've called this sort of very long historical continuum of public violence against Black people in the U.S., Rodney King. Mm -hmm. This year marks 30 years since his videotaped beating by Mm -hmm. four white LAPD officers. And in 1994, you wrote a most incredible essay on King called Can You Be Black and Look at This? Reading the Rodney King videos. could you speak to how you view this event now and its impact, that video, those 81 seconds of videotape?
2: 30 years. My goodness, that's a long time. So first of all, I think you just to sort of finish with Till. I think that um each generation has its object lesson. Each generation has its public story that feels emblematic, meaningful that 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 we identify with. Um and so I remember asking my father once about what the Emmett Till story meant to him and he said Um, Well, you know, it was it was horrifying. It was terrible, he said. But because I didn't have roots in the South Mm. or immediate roots, he's a Harlemite New Yorker. And he said, um, because I was older than he was, I didn't identify with it. The story I identified with was Medgar Evers. Mm. Because Medgar Evers, well, was a friend of his, was his age had children and a family, was working and fighting for civil rights within the context of an organization. He was part of the Mississippi NAACP, my father working within the context of other organizations. And so it felt to him like, oh, that's what happens to someone trying to do what I'm trying to do with someone like me, to my friend. That is what the object lesson is. Mm. Moving forward to Rodney King... I think when that happened, um, I was a young professor, and it was the first story that we knew about because it was filmed, George Holliday's 81 seconds that he filmed from his apartment window across the street. And having that evidence, that filmed evidence in an era, of course, before, you know, now we're in, you know, a different era where everything is is recorded on our phones. And I've thought about that as Mm -hmm. well in my writing about thinking about the Trayvon generation and the fact that Mm -hmm. these kids, the kids who are my kid's age, are seeing these images over and over and over and over and over again, infinite times on their own devices, often alone, Mm. uh, because they can access them that well, which I think what's different about Rodney King, we watched it on television. Mm
0: -hmm. Or even the jet picture, which was printed. and Exactly. It's a flimsy piece of paper. It didn't immediately go on the internet.
2: No, that's right. That's right. And also, you know, just in the life of Jet Magazine, Jet Magazine exists on coffee tables in families um, and in barbershops and beauty shops. It exists in black space. It exists in community space. A kid in the house wouldn't have their own jet. It would be the family's jet. Mm. So there's already also a context for processing the horror which I think is what we've moved away from with, uh, you know, all of the...
0: Yeah, it's, it's isolated individual now versus family or community.
2: I think that's very, very important. I think that's very, very important because it also means, you know, thinking experientially what it meant, for example, for my kids is that they would have watched it 20 times on the school bus before I could even talk to them about it. You know, I remember when Philando Castile was on the front page of the newspaper, you know, I had this kind of wild eyed mother thought where I thought, like, I'm going to hide all the papers because that particular photograph, you know, had the the police officer's gun coming in through the window. Mm -hmm. It had his bloodied T-shirt. And I can't remember there was a a baby in the car, you know, a sort of three or four year old in the car along with his um, with his partner. You were just right in that tableau. And I just thought, like, I got it. You know, if if they're going to see it, we have to talk about it together. But realizing the futility of that, which is not to say I have any issue with, you know, I mean, this kind of technology is is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the results that we have to think about. So back to Rodney King, it was a very focused news story. And I think that, you know, one of the the things that people talk about with um, the trial of Derek Chauvin is, you know, yes, justice was done, but do we have to have that much videotaped evidence? Because remember, when George Floyd was killed, there were many, many, many bystanders. It was a busy Mm
3: -hmm.
2: corner in a community. But I think people believed that the only reason that that trial went the way it did was because there was that much evidence,
3: mm-hmm.
2: that much evidence. And so back to Rodney King, it seemed like that was a watershed moment where there was that much evidence, but the first trial happening in Simi Valley, where it did, you know, in a, a, a very, very white community that the police officers came from, um, justice was not done. And then we saw, you know, the uprisings that followed.
0: Mm. I was actually lucky enough to conduct one of the last interviews with Rodney before he died.
2: Oh, my goodness.
0: And eerily enough, the subject we were discussing was how to find inner peace. Mm. And he told me that when I leave here, when my final day on this earth is up, I want to leave with peace. I want to have peace in my heart.
3: Mm, mm, mm.
0: I remember crying the morning my editor at The Times, who had done the interview for, emailed me and told me Rodney had died Mm. and kind of had to quickly cobble together something based on the interview we had had. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think about the importance of storytelling Mm -hmm. and understanding these stories and how they're processed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about gardening. We talked about alcoholism. We talked Mm. about a lot of different things. Wow. And I think we don't get to fully understand or grasp a lot of these stories if they're not told from different perspectives or in the right way it's sort of this idea of collective memory I guess maybe I'm ranting
2: (laughs) no but you know what you're making me think about is um because he was a he was a soul in search wasn't he I mean, I think about, um, and it's happening right now, so I've got it on my mind, Anna DeVere Smith's great play Twilight is at Signature Theatre right now. And when she made that play, she invited me to be a dramaturg on the play. And it was made, you know, in the ashes Mm -hmm. of the L.A. uprisings. And then she was acting the play, so it was extraordinary, her process. I mean, she was interviewing all these different people in communities in Los Angeles that didn't always talk to each other. She was taking Korean lessons and Spanish lessons and doing all the body things she needed to do because she was performing all the pieces. And with her team of dramaturgs, she was shaping the play. So every night, you know, she'd do interviews during the day, they'd like be transcribed. We'd quickly read them. We'd watch the preview performance. We'd come together afterwards and argue for hours about, you know, the play was like five hours Mm. uh, on how to shape it and how to think about this kind of collective storytelling. And one of the most vivid voices in that play was Rodney King's sister. And the story that she chose to use from her, Anna titled Hand Fishing. And She told a story of how when they were growing up in L.A., you know, which I mean, in parts of L.A. and I think where they grew up when they were children, some of it was kind of country. And she said, we used to just go out to the creek and we used to we used to go hand fishing. We used to uh, and Rodney would just reach in and pull out a fish. Just this magical story of a child at bliss in nature where you might not expect it and very poignantly you know losing his way um mm. but struggling struggling as we struggling as we do mm. so i think that um i'm i'm very moved by your piece of rodney king because i think all of it does make a collective portrait mm. of a complicated human being who was utterly violated
0: and i think about this now 30 years later in the context of George Floyd and the conversation we're going to be having about him in 30 years and mm-hmm. eight minutes and 46 seconds, not 81 seconds. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I, I think actually, though, we're having a conversation about George Floyd sooner. So maybe, maybe that is a certain kind of of progress. I mean.
0: Larger conversation, too, in many ways. Yes. A- across cultures, across.
2: That's right. I think that's really true. I mean, starting with the intimate, I think about um, his girlfriend and how she's been a really interesting voice, and how, you know, just so tragically she connected to Dante Wright as a school teacher or as someone who knew him from school in this, mm-hmm. you know, relatively not huge community suffering. It, disproportionate violence. Right. Um, and I think about, you know, the the voice of Darnella Frazier, incredibly, <laughs> impossibly to brave. To go back
0: the next day.
2: Incredibly, impossibly brave. How do you stand in the face of police who are murdering somebody and record it? I mean, let's just pause with that.
0: 17 years old.
2: 17 years old. So, you know, there, there's more storytelling that's happening now. But also, you know, in the trial of those officers, as with Derek Chauvin, you see too familiar language of bestialization, you know, of, of imagining these people as having superhuman strength that then justifies their murder. Mm-hmm. The stereotypes gone to the furthest extreme that people are not human Juxtaposed against the stories that make us all human Mm. is something that maybe is happening um, a little more in real-time proximity now. And that's good.
0: You've written, violence that has in large part characterized our history and underscored our vulnerability actually opens an avenue to get to what is articulate, resistant, and powerful in our tradition. I love that. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on it and especially sort of this lasting impact of the Till photograph, the footage of King and Floyd, how that all fits into this.
2: Well, I'm asking myself, do I still fully believe that? Uh, And I do, I do, but I feel a different, a different sorrow, a different, um, I don't think progress is immobile, but I think that this is a, tough wood we are making our way through. And I don't think we all together know how to do it. I mean, I think we have to each try in our own way and collectively try together. But it doesn't seem, you know, I think of, you know, my, my favorite uh, guiding light, Gwendolyn Brooks. And when she writes, we must wizard a path through the screaming weed. And I think about how, you know, weeds are not regular. Weeds are tangled. Um, Weeds sometimes obscure the path in front of you. Sometimes there isn't a path and you have to bushwhack your way through the weed. The screaming weed, to me, that's also like there are so many voices and needs and suffering. uh, And sometimes we don't hear them as articulated, separated Mm -hmm. voices or complaints, but rather as just like the violence made noise. Mm. So I I do think it's hard to know how to move forward, but we just have to kind of keep moving forward. But I do also think that in our traditions, there is so much power and strength, so many lessons of ingenuity, of wile, of perseverance, of patience, of overcoming, of rebelliousness, and we can't imagine that we are the first people to have to figure our way through some hard stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love that we're seeing a, a renaissance in traditional ecological knowledge. It's
2: mm-hmm. great. Oh, yes. Well, last night at Mellon, we put on a most gorgeous, amazing conversation that I felt so privileged to be in with Melchin, Allison, Janae Hamilton, and Emily mm. Um And Allison in particular was talking about... Um, you know, coming from the land in the South, coming from that knowledge. And we were talking about climate crisis, but as it intersects with questions of racial justice mm. and, you know, what all of those very, very wise people were saying is this is not the first time we've faced catastrophe, that we've faced the threat <laughs> of extinction, that we've, you know, faced forces that are larger than us. Mm. And there, we have a tremendous amount to learn from that ancestral and what I would call near-ancestral wisdom. Mm.
0: And what you're talking about, too, is memory. And on the environmental front, we could talk about Maya Lin and her What is Missing memorial. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about how collective memory really comes into this and this notion of memorialization. How do we remember? How do we forget? Could you speak to the notion of the memorial and the monument and the work you're doing at the Mellon Foundation with this $250 million monuments project, a colossal effort, the largest initiative in the foundation's history? In a way, it seems like your entire career, and we'll definitely get to Mm -hmm. that, has kind of led you toward this particular project.
2: Who knew? (laughs) Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have imagined that this would have been the, you know, manifestation of it. But I know that when I was talking to the board of Mellon, when they were considering whether or not they wanted to bring me as president, I said, this is one of the things that I want to do. This is one of the things that I think an organization with this particular expertise and focus, arts and culture, humanities, at this moment in American history, with this size of resource and the potential of bringing together other resources – This is what we have to do right now. And we have to start by thinking of monuments and memorials, not just as statues on pedestals, um, but to take it back to where you started us. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the ways that we remember? What are the ways that we tell our stories in public? Mm -hmm. What are the ways that we say in forms, you know, kind of eternal and fleeting? This is who we are. And I think where we've started um, the focus and the aspect of of memory that I think is really important is thinking about distorted history, thinking about lies, thinking about the illusions of making things look like history when really they are propaganda – all of that resides in the space of the Confederate monuments. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, even in my own realization, you know, when I, I didn't know the extent to which Confederate monuments were erected so far after the Civil War. So if you start with the fact that, hmm, you know, we're making a large permanent thing that asks us to put our heads back and look up in admiration, to feel small, to feel dwarfed, to feel that something is better than us. And that thing that we're asked to exalt is what? A treasonous lost cause. I mean, that's just factual. Mm -hmm. Treason part, factual, lost cause, they lost the war. So that's just the truth right there. So if we start with that question, then what I think about is the reproduction of hundreds of Stonewall Jacksons and Robert E. Lees. And the putting them in places sometimes where they never even were, mm-hmm. where the Civil War wasn't even fought. So that leads me to the question of like, okay, we receive this as history, but actually it's not about this place. It's telling us a different story. And then when you m- move further to end what was the cause they fought for, what do they stand for? And the very important fact that at moments when civil rights were moving forward, that that's where you see more of these monuments. I'm telling you things that you know, but, um, <laughs> you, you know, that, that then you think, okay, so what is the work that the putting up of this monument is doing? And very simply, in the face of progress, it is asserting white supremacy. So I think we have to start there because of the way that that many very smart, reading, thinking, knowledgeable people Assumed I myself would have assumed that Confederate monuments were put up close to the time of the Civil War and not, for example, in the town where I grew up in 1953, Washington, D.C., in the windows of the National Cathedral. What is that community saying and what are they saying Mm. about sacred space? Why do war people even belong in a church to begin with. Let's take all the other stuff out of it. So I just find that these questions, which for me are teacher questions, critical thinking questions, African-American studies questions, allow you to break it down, which I just find so empowering. Then let us think about what does it mean to tell more stories, different stories, visually varied stories, Mm -hmm. like no more 12-foot stone horses with rearing back with white men on them in uniform. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, the the, the great monuments lab um, audit um, mm-hmm. work. Yeah. You know, no more like acts of war. We're going to keep saying that's wonderful. That's what we celebrate. War is tragic.
0: Yeah. I mean, Maya Lin in many ways completely shifted the conversation. Yes. To one that was about tragedy and yes. trauma and loss, yes. Not saying anything bad about the soldiers and the people who serve, but acknowledging the the literal rift in the earth.
2: Yes, I mean that that monument, total game changer, and also that a a twenty one year old visioned that, I think is is so beautiful and so extraordinary. Asian
0: American woman, no Asian less. Asian
2: American woman, no less. And she was a year ahead of me, I think, in college at Yale. Oh. I didn't know her. I don't know her. But when she won that prize, it was just this kind of like, what? <laughs> and it was a youthquake moment too, you know, just to think, mm. wow, this very profound and fundamental, real, you know, full stop intervention in how American history is told in space and place.
0: I love to think about that memorial as a youth quake in the mall. That's good.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. And I think also um, thinking about memorials as not, what does it mean to to not have bodies? Mm. You know, how much those names on the walls evoke and also how continually activatable that space is because of all of the people who go and, and touch the, the carved in names of their loved ones.
0: I don't normally do this in an interview, but I do, have, with you having said that, have to mention that um, I myself was once memorialized when I was a child. It's a it's a statue that exists in Sioux City, Iowa.
2: What? It's
0: very strange. Tell
2: me that story.
0: <laughs> well, I've actually told the story on this very podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the brief version is that there was a picture, a photograph that then was sort of distilling a heroic version of this tragic event, a plane crash that I had survived,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: along with 184 others. And 112 people had died in this crash. At the memorial now, there are no names. There's Mm. a statue at the center depicting me, three and a half years old, being carried. Mm. And that's it. There's some plaques with some things that were said in the in the immediate aftermath by rescue workers, and they're semi abstract and it's it's interesting. It it intrigues, but what's missing is my mom's name, mm-hmm. the name of the hundred eleven other people who died,
3: mm-hmm.
0: even the names of the people who are on the plane.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So
0: it's for me, it's become this very visceral. Uh, mm-hmm cast-in-bronze fact of my life.
2: Yes, yes. Um,
0: and I bring this up because we're talking about representation of how an event is understood and construed, but we're also talking about representation of peoples. Mm-hmm. These really connect in like a, a very major way. Mm-hmm. And the Monuments Lab Project, the National Monument Audit, that happened recently. I have no idea if they included this memorial in the the monument audit, but to me, what it depicts is a hero story. It depicts a boy being carried, a sort of almost biblical motif. Mm -hmm. The strong man carrying the Mm -hmm. young boy. It doesn't tell the multitudes of what happened that day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell the complexity and contradiction of... What took place, and it also doesn't really reflect what's missing, mm-hmm. who's missing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was lost.
2: Well, and if we could talk about that a little more, because it's really extraordinary. I mean, you know, you've said the thing that I would press on, which is the idea is the idea of heroism, mm. and how do we tell our stories with? you know, more than one thing being true at the same time. And also what would it mean? I mean, for you, uh, you know, your mother's name, what would that mean for you? But also what would it mean for other people? Mm-hmm. Because people who didn't lose folks in the Vietnam war go and are moved by that sight. And perhaps they're more moved if they see someone who's having a, you know, a private moment. Mm -hmm. But the name as emblem, the -hmm. way that all of our names are unique, that can be encountered by someone who doesn't know the person. Serial names, so many Mm -hmm. names. You said 112?
0: 112 died.
2: So, I mean, that's, you know, name after name. If you think about the ways in sometimes very moving memorial ceremonies that They take a very long time because you read out everyone's name and you know that you have to stay to the end and you know that you have to stay through your emotions and you know that actually it's wrong to leave after your person is called. You have to stay for the whole thing
3: Mm
2: -hmm. because tragedy and accident and fate, that belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that also just to take it even a little bit further and what I think is really important about your read of the monument is that if we only mark our own, our one or two or, you know, and if we never collectivize it, and if we never learn to have empathy for the name of a person who we didn't even know, then we're actually very limited in how quickly we can move forward with the force of empathy.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we move on from memorials and monuments connected to this, I'm curious, what are your views of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture? And, and what did it mean to you when it opened on the National Mall five years ago in 2016? Because, you know, in many ways, the institution and the building were quite literally a century in the making mm-hmm. and very much reflective of what you're talking about. How do you contain multitudes? How do you show what it means to be African-American? How do you define that? Okay, you know I can't answer that question. It's too big.
2: Um, but I have a lot of things to say. I have a lot of things to say. It was that long coming. So I think that, again, what's important in telling the full story, and I don't even think it takes longer to tell a full story. It's just that we, we don't want to just rely on the triumphal you know last few years to completion story
3: mm-hmm.
2: that we can cheer about that we can tie it to barack obama's presidency you know that we can feel like there we stand on top of this hill um we have to talk about it as something that is a long journey mm-hmm. we have to talk about it in terms of the absences it addresses we have to talk about it in terms of all of the obstacles and people who didn't even think it should exist, let alone exist in its place of centrality, uh, where it exists. Some people didn't like the what I think is extraordinary David Adjaye design as a, a kind of um, African American vessel.
0: Most of it, most people don't realize, is underground.
3: Yes,
2: exactly. which I love.
0: It's, oh, it's, it's like it's, it's like history coming up from. Below the National Mall. I
2: yes. Mean. And the genius, the genius of how they start you there when you mm-hmm. go down in that elevator, which is yeah. also a little scary, I think, having that experience. Yeah.
0: I mean, to to go from Emmett Till's casket to Oprah's set design is is quite a jarring. It,
2: many things. Many <laughs> things. So, I mean, I think that, um, that it's like the most badass of all the Smithsonian's. I think is kind of fabulous, (laughs) you know. um, I think that the objects and the power of those objects, so when you think about the flower sack um, or you think about Harriet Tubman's hymnal or, you know. Nat
0: Turner's Bible.
2: All of those objects and, you know, the way that I think the design of the museum truly understands the vibrational power and and the way that objects carry history forward. I've never, I've been there many times and, and one of my proudest things as far as just, this career I found myself in is that I was at the Ford Foundation and that both Ford and Mellon were very, very major Mm. funders. Like I helped. And that is just extraordinary. Um, Mm. I think about the first day of dedication uh, where a woman was brought who she obviously herself was not enslaved, but she was the daughter of enslaved people. She was in her hundreds and she came up on the stage and rang a bell and that bells rang at black churches at that moment all over the country. So that was an extraordinary tableau. But I think that what it reminded us is that um, in the way that slavery is fundamental to the formation of this country, it is not so far in the past that here was a woman who touches that, Mm. that my, mother that she knew two of her grandparents really knew who were born enslaved and that she tells those stories to my 22 and 23 year old children. So suddenly these children are connected just in a wusk from someone they know very, very well, not from a history book. Mm. So I think just that kind of, you know, collapsing of time to understand What's a long time in history and what's not a long time in history? The 80 years we started with, that's not a long time in history. Um, To remember the ways that the United States is a youngish country. So I think that also back to our question about memorials, the way that things are always built to look so old and they're not. You know, what's all this neo gothic stuff? It's in Europe, something else. <laughs> so um, I think that all of that could be understood in that extraordinary mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. It also felt like a purely good thing
0: mm-hmm. for everybody. About a year before it opened, I have no idea. I mean, I just feel so lucky to have been put in this position, but I was... Writing a cover story on David Adjaye for Surface Magazine. Oh, nice. And found myself in the building as a shell with David on the mall.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: And walking through that building empty with him, they had just put the facade on. It was like staring into a void. Mm. It was, I still can't really describe the feeling I had. Yes. But it was a deep understanding that this history that had been completely brushed over, ignored, to a certain extent, lost or stomped on, was all of a sudden going to be filling this cavernous space. Wow. I did want to stay in Washington, D.C. and go back to your childhood there. Your father, as you mentioned, was a civil rights advisor to President Lyndon Johnson and secretary of the army during the Carter administration. He also ran for mayor in the city's first mayoral election. Your mother is a historian and taught African-American women's history at George Washington University. Could you speak to what your home life was like, what it was like growing up in that particular household, in that environment, that environment being both the home and the city?
2: I'll start with the city, and it's always fun to to go back and study the place and time that you just know in your memory. Washington at the time was almost eighty percent black. Uh, Washington was a very international place, um, owing to the presence of the embassy and other kinds of things. Washington had across class, across occupation, and you know all kinds of black people. Mm-hmm. When my parents came from New York City in nineteen sixty three. It was still a segregated Southern city, Mm. but it was also a city with a deep history of empowered and educated Black people. So being in a space where Black everythingness was normal and was non-conflictual, I feel was the most tremendous gift I could have imagined. You know, one of my many theories, um, but I think about some of the white people who I grew up with, um, who are very matter of fact, about race, because they grew up in the minority and nothing bad happened, (laughs) you know, kind of plain and simple. They grew up knowing all kinds of black people. And that's that, you know, people are people. Um, So I I recommend that everyone grow up in Washington, D.C., (laughs) in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, In my house, there was um, a sense always of civic, of community, of being helpful to other people, of certainly being—if we wouldn't have said at a moment in history—that mm-hmm. um, dad was doing important work for the race, mm. and that he was working very hard, and we were all devoted to that sense of of beautiful, hopeful progress, even when it was hard. So that was, you know, beautiful and exhilarating. When he came home, it was my fun dad. Uh, it was my fun, funny. Dad. It was yummy dinners. Um, it was my mother at the time um, hadn't yet become a historian, but she is a very intense intellectual. So my mother, and this is the truth read a whole book every night. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say education was a value, um, mm. although I didn't at the time know or imagine that I would that I would earn a PhD. But, you know, just sort of a household where the inevitability of college mm. and the power and beauty of education, but also that whatever privileges you had, and this was a very continual rhetoric, that you had to use them in service of being helpful to um to other people.
0: Mm. And, and I understand, you know, you're surrounded by books, but there are actually only like four books of poetry. Shakespeare's Sonnets, Leroy Jones's The Dead Lecture, Archibald McLeish's The Wild Old Wicked Man, and Lucille Clifton's Good Times. Of course, over time, you start investigating and getting deep into poetry. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the poets who had the largest impact on you in your youth, or even across time. You know, I'm thinking Lucille Clifton, but also Gwendolyn Brooks, who you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. June Jordan.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't know I was a poet until I sort of started really working as a poet until I was um, in graduate school, Mm. when that became the art form that I devoted myself to. But I certainly loved poetry. And with those four books, what I think about is, I mean, I could practically tell you the table of contents for each of them because they were the only four I read them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I do think one thing that is just different of when I grew up is that, you know, you had four TV stations, you know, you had the three networks and then you had public television. Um, And there was also a local public TV station, Channel 20, The Great Entertainer. And that's Mm. where you would watch like Ultraman and the kind of like anime cartoons and things like that. Um, But TV went off. You know, like late on Sunday, like they, they would play taps on the television and there would be no more TV. So you you sometimes that meant that you would return to the things you had. There wasn't the same kind of consumer culture in the following regard. There wasn't like TJ Maxx and all of those kinds of places where even if you didn't have a lot of money, you could have a ton of stuff. You know, we didn't have much stuff. But you had time. But we had time, and that also means you go back to the same stuff.
0: Poetry time.
2: <laughs> Poetry time. So, you know, you can yeah. read, I, you know, I will tell you that you can read any of those books that you mentioned 200 times, and they will still be rewarding. And I think that there's an interesting lesson in that about what it means mm. to continue to Immerse yourself and have different experiences with work that is great enough to continue to yield. But then later on, as you mentioned, it became Gwendolyn Brooks, who I think both with her absolute consummate artistry and trust in her own voice, grammar, syntax, nobody sounds like Gwendolyn Brooks. No one mm. can do as much as she does in very small space, she is mm-hmm. not an epic poet, though she did write one long epic poem in the Mecca. But you know, mostly they are tight, 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 and a whole universe and a whole community mm. exists in each of, of those poems, and every word is precise. And she makes up words, and she uses strange words.
0: I still remember the first time I ever read "We Real Cool."
2: Mm-hmm. Right? What is that poem like? Thirty words, maybe. Yeah. You know, we real cool. We. Left school, a little more than 30. Um, Or, you know, like, you know, think of thaumaturgic lass looking in the looking glass, taming all that anger down. You know, she just doesn't sound like anyone else. And she trusts in that. Mm. And she was from a place, mostly her whole life lived in 10 blocks on the south side of Chicago. But in that place, in that community was everything. So, you know, learn that from her. Derek Walcott, who was my teacher, Mm -hmm. um, who taught me so much about the universes in a small place, the Caribbean, St. Lucia.
0: The Schooner Flight, another poem I love.
2: That poem is so great. Imagine, I heard when he was my teacher, he read the whole poem to us in a little teeny tiny small basement seminar room. Mm. Just listening to him, reading it around the table. And his whole approach to form Ah, uh, more faithful to form, but bringing form together with the ways folk talk, which you see so much mm. in the schooner flight and the movement between languages and vernaculars. You know, Lucille Clifton. I'll just she'll just be the last one I'll touch on, and for her pithiness, her philosophy, her bone truth, her meditativeness, uh, her bodily understanding. You know, the body is in all of those poems and she became someone who was another mother to me mm. so to to then have a relationship with that person and to feel A a happy responsibility for helping with her legacy. So from this strange place in philanthropy, for example, we've given support to her house in Baltimore that her daughter is turning into a center for for poetry and community Mm. as it was when she grew up.
3: Mm.
2: So those kinds of circles are really very, very beautiful. And then just for June Jordan, I would say, because every day of her life was an activist day. Every day of her life was a purposeful day. Every day of her life was a face-fear day. She was just brave.
0: So your first book of poems, The Venus Hottentot, comes out 1990. Over the next two decades, you go on to write more collections of poetry, including Body of Life in 1996, Antebellum Dream Book in 2001, and American Sublime in 2005. We could turn each of these into its own episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I'll talk briefly here about antebellum dream book, which eerily blurs this line between dreams and reality to a very profound effect. One of the poems crash particularly stood out to me and now listeners will likely know why, um, as a plane crash survivor myself, it just hit me on this really deep gut level. And I was hoping you could read it here for the listeners.
2: I would be happy to read it. Thank you for asking me to do so. and and reading it in the context of your story also gives it another layer of meaning for me, too. Mm. Um I think what's important also to say about the antebellum dream book and these poems, which are not they're not transcribed dreams, but many of them started with dreams because I think that in dream space for a poet, um that's when, Association is free. That's when images are strange and you have to decide whether or not you're going to trust them. That's where language juxtapositions Mm. are unexpected. So I think that trying to kind of um, mine that dream space um, is very rich in language and image for poets. Mm. And so it meant that also sometimes there were poems that I didn't always understand. Mm. So this is called Crash. I am the last woman off of the plane that has crashed in a cornfield near Philly, picking through hot metal for my rucksack and diaper bag. No black box, no fuselage, just sister girl pilot wiping soot from her eyes, happy to be alive. Her dreadlocks will hold the smoke for weeks." All the white passengers had bailed out before impact, so certain a sister couldn't navigate the crash. Oh, gender. Oh, race. Oh, ye of little faith. Here we are in the cornfield, bruised and dirty but alive. I invite Sister Girl Pilot home for dinner at my parents' for my mother's roast chicken with gravy and rice. To celebrate. So, this is the first book of poems I wrote uh, after becoming a mother. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, early motherhood and pregnancy in this book as well. So, I think that on the one level, the dream in the poem is a maternal anxiety dream. You know, something terrible has happened. I have to find the diaper bag. I have to find my stuff. That way, in which when you have a child, you have to leave the house so equipped. And that parenthood is about eventualities of things that you cannot see and cannot predict. And it's like that all day long and all mm-hmm. night long. So I think that, it, you know, it's a parental anxiety dream. But I also think that on the surface, this idea of what would it mean for more people to put their faith in black women? You know, what would it mean not to be underestimated? What would it mean to be turned to, not because we can save the world, but because, you know, here, here are resources. What would it mean to see us as heroes? So here I think about Renee Cox's series Rajay to the Rescue, which I love so much, mm. where she photographs herself as a black woman superhero know all of these historical situations and you know, she's on top of the Statue of Liberty, you know, she's taking Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben off their boxes. you know she it's it's so wonderful. So I think that you know, thinking about that and and to me, you know obviously the moment in the poem where you pause is, oh gender, o race, O ye of little faith, to also ask the question, what is the cost of that lack of faith? You know, not just to to black women, but to society at mm-hmm. large. And then in the way in which there's also always memory, her dreadlocks will hold the smoke for weeks. Um, When I was in college, I was in a car accident. And it was a car accident where I wasn't hurt. So I haven't even, so this is for us to talk about. Um, But I had to break the glass and crawl through the window. And after we got out, We walked across. It was on the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut. Mm. And we walked across and we watched the car explode, like completely explode. And my hair smelled of smoke for weeks. Mm. So that's the kind of sensory memory that's in there. Um, And as I think about it again now for the first time, I think, what does it mean to escape, you know, the narrow escape? What does that teach you? How do you carry that? How do you process that? So that's in there too.
0: Wow. There's a lot of places I would love to go with this right now. But while I still have you, I really wanted to talk to you about your 2015 book, The Light of the World, Mm -hmm. a memoir, and elegy about the passing of your husband, Ficre, and really your life with him.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: He was a humanitarian activist, an award-winning painter, a chef, and just an incredible Eurotrain immigrant. Time is something you constantly reflect on throughout the book.
3: Hmm.
0: Of your 15 years to marriage, 16 years together, 1996 to 2012, you note that time stretched and stretched. When I was with him, I felt that there was suddenly enough time to talk to read to think to sleep to make love to drink coffee or tea to practice yoga to walk of becoming a mother you write i remember some of the days being almost gelid in their slowness i have never experienced time so consciously time moved as though through honey and then you describe the experience of lying with figre after his death as time that cannot be measured mm. A rough poem you jotted down in the aftermath of his passing family in three-quarters time is also about time. I sort of just unpacked time in terms of the book, but Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you how you've been thinking about time in the years since writing it. And you moved from New Haven in Connecticut to New York. You left Yale, became a professor at Columbia, and then became director of creativity and free expression at the Ford Foundation, which you've talked about and now in your role at the Mellon Foundation, you've raised your two boys. How are you thinking about time now? How do you process time in the context of the past, I guess, six years?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that that read on the book um, and for, you know, lifting out that topic so, so beautifully. Um, and just answering you from scratch, I feel like... Time never feels gelid or as though through honey anymore. I wake every day as from a cannonball, feeling like I don't have time. And some of that is, you know, it's a busy city, you know, whooshy, whooshy, whoosh. Um, But also some of it is um, I was raised to understand that this philanthropic opportunity is one that must be seized with urgency. Because you never know when things will change. You never know when someone will catch on to actually the force of what we're trying to do, where someone will thwart us. Things happen. So I think that um, the political urgency that is sort of a direct line from my dad is get your work done as though all you have is today. You know, do as much as you can, help as much as you can with the day you have. I think the, the, the period of life that this represents with, you know, two sons who are young adults now and at my age uh, and having lost so unexpectedly, I just know in a very real way that time is not promised. That's just real. That's just that's just the truth. Um, I think that, you know, coming out of these pandemic 18 plus months, not quite sure how we'll measure that. Sometimes it felt like time slowed down because we couldn't do as many things. Certainly, you know, when lockdown began, I probably had 20 work trips that were planned that didn't happen. So I was used to that kind of movement. And I think there was something that was maybe okay about being home alone for months on end, because it did actually create a certain kind of time. So, you know, I'm a yogi, you know, I started doing my yoga at home at different times from when I usually, you know, there were some things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I took, like everybody else, I had my Zoom cocktail friends and, you know, I had more chats with some people because we weren't all running. But the anxiety was such. And I think that also remembering that the COVID pandemic didn't have to happen like it happened. It was mismanaged. We were lied to. People suffered disproportionately because of of race and because of income. So it's not just like it was a bug we had to manage. Mm -hmm. It was a fucked up society with fucked up governance that allowed people to suffer and die and be divided. So really seeing that and seeing that, you know, as it dovetailed with all of the racial conflagrations that we had made it um, not a pleasurable kind of slowed down time, but I think a reckoning, you know, and I think that what yoga teaches you is if you can breathe and face and move through, right? Mm. And if you don't let the rising anxiety be the governance of your body and your mental state, then you can keep moving forward. And the profundity of what it means in a yogic practice to be in the present. And to me, it doesn't mean you forget the past, and it doesn't mean that you aren't moving toward the future, but you have to ground in that present.
0: I wanted to end on a favorite quote of yours from Rilke, which I also love. Just keep going, no feeling is final.
2: I mean, that's perfect, given where we... We just were, and I I think that that is, I think that that is the truth. (laughs) I think that that is the
0: truth. Thank you, Elizabeth.
2: Oh my goodness! Thank you, thank you. Let this be the beginning of of a very long conversation.
1: Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, Timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can now find all of our projects in one place on our website, slowdown.tv. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Tiffany Zhao, Emily Jang, Mike Lala, and Pat McCusker.